Cornerstone Bible Fellowship's online sermons. Join us each week as we dig into the truths of God's Word. You can find our sermons online at cbf.us slash sermons. We'd love to have you join us for a worship service this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at our campus at 7351 Warden Road in Sherwood, Arkansas. Now, let's listen to this week's sermon. There is a, a saying, what came first, the chicken or the egg? And it's used as kind of a phrase to present, you know, one of those unanswerable questions because, you know, you can't have a chicken unless you first had an egg because chickens come from eggs. But you also can't have an egg unless you have a chicken because the eggs come from chickens. So we use this phrase to just kind of describe one of those circumstances where we just kind of scratch our head, right? Not really sure. Well, when we come to the Word of God, there are, are certain things that are in a similar way, and none of that is more obvious than the responsibility of, of man or humans and the sovereignty of God. We clearly read in the Word of God that we are responsible to repent of our sins, to have faith, to call on the name of Jesus Christ. But at the same point, we also see the sovereignty of God, that God is not surprised, he's not shocked, there is not something that happens that he went, huh. I didn't see that one coming. That doesn't happen. And we see various passages that just kind of present these things beside each other. If you go to the Old Testament and you look at the nation of Israel, when they were in Egypt and God sends the ten plagues and Moses and everything there, we see Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the king of Egypt. And ten different times the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his heart to not let the people leave. But the Bible also says ten times that God hardened his heart to not let the people leave. One of the passages that I, I've, I've, been, I've noted over the years is in Isaiah chapter 10. In Isaiah chapter 10, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he's talking about the nation of Assyria. Assyria is a, it was a world empire at the time that eventually would destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. God says this in verses 5 and 6, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against the godless nation, I send him. And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Here in this verse, we see God speaking to this nation saying, Your staff is my staff. I send you. I command you. And just six verses later, it says this, Then the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem. He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eye. And then the king of Assyria, just a few verses later, is held responsible. Nowhere is this conundrum, so to speak, more obvious than in the area of salvation. Coming to know Jesus Christ, taking a a, a sinner, somebody who is separated from God, and that person becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. The Bible clearly speaks about human responsibility, as I've mentioned. You know, we talk about coming to Jesus, repenting of our sins, turning to him in faith. And the Bible clearly speaks of salvation is by grace. It's an act of God's grace. It's an act of his mercy. And so today, as we get to the Last section of John chapter 1, we see the calling of the disciples as John records it. And as we look at the calling of these disciples here in John, 
we see one of the great illustrations of the interaction of human responsibility and the divine work of God in the lives of people coming to Christ. You're going to see both sides. We see Andrew, we see Peter, we see Philip, we see Nathaniel, we see another guy, we're not really sure. Come to Jesus. But we also see Jesus calling them. And so we see human responsibility and we see the divine work of God and we see it work together. And so let's look at it this morning. In the honor of God's word, would you stand with me? We're going to read verse 38 of John chapter 1 through the end of chapter 1. Jesus turned and saw them following. If you remember, this is the two disciples that John the Baptist uh, lost as they decided to follow Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour, or four in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what we see here. Of Lord, of what you've called us to and what we see you do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. This illustration of the interaction of human responsibility and divine sovereignty and salvation, we're going to start, and it's not necessarily verse by verse, just kind of looking at this section, we're going to start with the human side. The human side, the human responsibility. And we see in this passage that there is, first of all, leading people. Leading people to Jesus. The responsibility to lead them. If you remember, as I said at the beginning, the two disciples there in in verse 38 that are following Jesus, they're originally with a different guy. They were with John the Baptist. We saw that last time. John the Baptist pointed out who Jesus was. He said, behold, the Lamb of God. And they, they left to follow Jesus. John the Baptist led them to Jesus. Andrew, once he spends some time with Jesus, the next day he wakes up and he goes and finds his brother. And what does he do with his brother? Leads him to Jesus. Philip is called by Jesus. And what does he do? He goes in verse 45 and finds Nathanael, apparently a friend of his. He takes someone to Jesus. Over and over we see in this passage, leading people to Jesus. One of the the interesting things about Andrew He's the first guy mentioned here, Andrew, who brings his brother Simon. Andrew only makes a couple of appearances. We don't 
you know, we know a lot about Peter and John and James, but some of the other disciples, they're, they're not in here a whole lot. But Andrew's in, in John a couple of times. He makes his appearance here, and we see him a couple of other places. The next time we see him is in chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. This is the feeding of the 5,000. Now, that's actually a misnomer. There's way more than 5,000 people. It just says there's 5,000 men there. There's probably over 10,000 people. And in verses uh, 5 through 9, it says this. Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where do we buy bread that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii would not, uh, be not enough bread to uh, fill these people for just to get a little. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, here's Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So there's 10,000 people, and and Jesus says, what are we going to do? He knows what he's going to do, but he asks Philip. Philip says, even if we had thousands and thousands of dollars, this wouldn't do anything. And then, I mean, to put it into today's terms, it's almost like Andrew says, well, there's a kid here who has a Happy Meal. I mean, he's got six nuggets and some fries. And so quite clearly, he thinks Jesus might be able to perform a miracle because either he thinks there's a miracle or he's not playing with the full deck. I mean, a happy meal. What good does that really do? But Andrew leads this boy to whom? To Jesus. Chapter 12, Andrew makes his next appearance. Verse 20, it says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These are just some non-Jewish people. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told whom? Jesus. Everything about Andrew that we see in this gospel is let's just get it to Jesus. Let's go. We've got a problem, go to Jesus. We've got people who don't know him, let's take him to Jesus. i got a brother who doesn't know Jesus. I've just found out something great. I want to take him to Jesus. One of the great stories of somebody who understood this principle of, of the human responsibility and salvation was a Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball. Some of you have heard who this guy is, but you'll find out in just a moment. He was a Sunday school teacher in the 1800s in Massachusetts, and he taught young men. By that, I mean these were teenagers, 14, 15-year-old boys. He taught a Sunday school class, and one Sunday school Sunday, a, a boy came in. He didn't know, didn't have a Bible, and didn't really know much, and this this Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball, felt after the class, he really felt compelled to go talk to this boy, to spend some time with him, to tell him about Jesus. And the boy worked at a shoe store in town in Boston. And this is the account Edward Kimball wrote about this going to this boy. He says, I started down to Holton's shoe store. When I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether or not I ought to go in just then during business hours. And I thought maybe my mission might embarrass the boy, that when I went away, the other clerks might ask who I was, and when they learned, they might taunt him and ask if I was trying to make a good boy out of him. While I was pondering over it all, I passed the store without even noticing it. We've all been there, a big thing to discuss, and we just lose our place in the day. It says, then when I found I had gone by the door, I determined to make a dash for it and have it over. Sometimes when we share the gospel, it kind of feels that way. I just get this over with. It says, I found the boy in the back part of the store wrapping up the shoes and paper and putting them on shelves. I went up to him and put my hand on his shoulder, and as I leaned over, I placed my foot upon a shoebox. Then I made my plea. 
and I feel that it was really a very weak one. I don't know what words I used, nor could he tell. I simply told him of Christ's love for him and the life love Christ wanted in return. That was it. I think the boy said afterward that there were tears in my eyes. It seemed that the young man was just ready for the light that then broke upon him. For there at once in the back of that shoe store in Boston, D.L. Moody, the future great evangelist, gave himself and his life to Christ. From the faithful act of a Sunday school teacher. Who, like Andrew, who, like Philip, took somebody to Jesus. One of the things that we shared is at our, our elders meeting, we had this little illustration of a plant. It's just kind of a whole thing that we want to see in, in each member here at Cornerstone. And the last part of it was in this plant that it produces fruit. That part of being a follower of Jesus Christ, part of being a disciple is, is making disciples. And one of the things that I would encourage you, even as you, you get together with your life groups and you share prayer requests and you share things that are going on, is to share how are you involved in leading people to Christ? What capacity? You may coach. You may teach in the children's department. You may lead a Bible study. You may just have neighbors that you spend time with that you're trying to invest in their lives. You may be teaching your children using home point and trying to invest in their lives or your grandchildren. But take time with your brothers and sisters in Christ and say, all right, here's what I'm doing. Here's how God is using me. So often we hear this, yes, I know my responsibility is to lead people, somebody else, and say, well, here's something about the gospel, but it goes nowhere. Take the next step and talk to somebody else and say, well, here's something I'm trying. Could you pray for me? Encourage me. We lead people. In Romans chapter 10, verse 14 through 15, it says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Leading people to Christ. This is why we do missions. This is why missionaries go across the seas. This is why... This is why when we leave here, there's a world that needs us and us to take responsibility for what God has told us to do, to lead. The next thing that we see in here on the human side of responsibility is listening. It's interesting when you go back to verse 38, we see the first words Jesus utters in this gospel. We've had the great prologue. Jesus described by John in all of these great ways. We've listened to, as, as we've talked about John the Baptist. But here, Jesus finally gets to speak. And what does he say? What are you seeking? There's a lot in that phrase, isn't there? Two men are following him. He turns around and he says to them, what are, you, what, are you, what are you looking for? In essence, that kind of sums up our lives in a way. I mean, at some point in our lives, as we age, we be, kind of become self-aware of, okay, we're here on the earth We've got a few years. The older we get, the, real, the, the more we realize those years aren't so, so many. What are you seeking? What are you after? And these two disciples, they, they then just say, where are you? Say, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he says, come and see. This isn't an interchange of people going like, you know, are you staying at the Motel 6? Can I go see your room? Do you have a nice pool? That's not what's going on here. When they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? It means you are a teacher. We want what you have. We want what you are, are, are preaching and teaching. Where are you staying so that we can come and sit at your feet and learn from you? That's why Jesus says, come and see. Come, be a part of this. That's what you want. Come. Your ears are open. 
We look over here, Nathaniel has a, a similar type of reaction. His buddy Philip shows up and says, hey, we have found the one Moses and the prophets wrote about. Nathaniel says, he didn't like Nazareth. He didn't come out of Nazareth. There's also a sense there that the Bible doesn't prophesy anything out of Nazareth. When he shows up, Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. What's interesting is the word Israelite here. At this time, they were called Jews for the most part. Occasionally Israelites, but for the most part, Jews. And he says, In him there is no deceit. Now, this probably is not a phrase to say he doesn't ever lie. Okay, I've never really met anyone who's never told a lie. But he's not deceived. He's not tricked. In him, he is somebody who studies the scriptures. That's why Philip says to him, the, the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about, Nathaniel was studying. He was looking for something. He didn't think Nazareth was the place, but he said, I'm willing to go and hear this guy out. Jesus sees him coming and says, here's a guy who doesn't rely on the fact that he's just an Israelite or a Jewish person or he has this physical ancestry from Abraham. He's seeking out something. He's not deceived. I had a, a friend years ago. She claimed to be an agnostic. That's a, a term that people, I think, like to use today to sound sophisticated. It's like being independent in politics. Everybody has one way or the other that they go, but it just sounds like, hey, I can be whatever I want. An agnostic spiritually is that. It's not that I don't believe in God, maybe, but it's not that I believe there's a God. I mean, maybe there's not. I'm just, I don't really know. And the thing that I knew a few people like this, that whenever you talk to them about their agnosticism, you could, if you challenge them to say, hey, are you trying to find out more? Are you trying to figure out, is Jesus really who he says he is? Are you studying the scriptures? Are you, you, you delving into them? Are you? No. They just like to say they're agnostic because that was a way to just sound sophisticated. There are many people that just don't care. They're not looking. But there are many others that are. In our day-to-day -day lives, that's why I say when we, we pray for lost people, we're praying for those that are showing this inclination to hear things of a spiritual sense. Jesus talked about this in, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37 and 38. He said this to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. There are those that are out there. They're, they're, they're ready to be picked, so to speak, but they need to be picked. We need laborers to go out there. They're listening. They're spiritually hungry. Luke chapter 10, verse 6, as Jesus sent his disciples out into the world to go and, and kind of have a, a test run of their ministry without him. So he was giving them instructions. He said this, if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. He was saying, listen, as you go out, you're going to come across lots of different people. Some will be open there'll be men of peace they want to hear what you have to say they're, they're they're genuinely spiritually open there are others that no that's not the case but there is a sense in our lives as we see with these disciples andrew and the one that's not named with with nathaniel that's why we we pray for folks that they would be open that they would listen i'm over don't you times of praying for lost people in our lives you have the same name over and over, don't you? You have that same family member or friend or co-worker. And you're praying, Lord, open their ears. We'll get to the divine side here in just a moment. But we pray for those that they would listen. We have leading, we have listening, and then finally we have changing. Repenting, turning. Verse 41, it says this. 
verse 40 says, One of the two who heard John speak was named Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, What? We have found the Messiah. This is after one day. Andrew comes to Peter. It's not like we found this guy. He's got some interesting things to say. He's got some, I don't know, you know, so we're, we're testing him out. We have found the Messiah. We have found the one that has been promised in the Old Testament. We have found the one, the Christ. Look at how Nathaniel responds in verse 49. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Jesus even responds to him, do you believe? There's a change. There is repentance. Jesus has become something different to them. There is a call in the Bible that we must repent of our sins. Repent of the fact, not just that we do some bad things, that we are sinners opposed to God. And that when we hear the claims of Christ, we say, I want him to be the Lord of my life. I have turned from me being God in my own life, and he is who he says he is. And what will happen is our lives will begin to change. We'll become more and more like Christ. We will reflect Christ in our lives. This is the sign that the New Testament gives us when we are questioning our salvation. It's not to ask ourselves, did I say this little prayer 15, 20, 50 years ago? It's to look at our lives and how we're living them. An illustration of this, years ago, I went to a pastor conference in Alabama, and I stayed at this hotel, and I don't know if they didn't wash the sheets or what, but I got a rash on my chest. And I thought I could just, you know, muscle through it. One Sunday morning, about the time I got up to preach, it just really got me. And I sat there the whole time going, Lord, if you could just get me through this. It was a short sermon, let me tell you. I got to go somewhere and get something. So the service was over. I walked down. They're doing the last song. My wife's like, how are you doing? I'm like, I got to go. So I went to this little urgent care there on a Sunday, and I told them, and they took a look, and they're like, yeah, it's just a contact rash, nothing big deal. We're going to give you a shot. So I got the shot. Well, the shot was fixing the problem. But it took, I don't know, 48, 72 hours, something like that, for it to finally start to clear up. But I knew I had received the shot because it started to clear up. Something started to change. Now, if it had been two weeks, three weeks, four weeks later, nothing was changing. In fact, it was starting to spread all over my body. I probably would have questioned the shot if I really got the medicine, right? So it is when we repent and turn to Christ. When we live our lives, if we're really indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, If Jesus is really the king of kings, we will start to change. We will be different than we were five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. What scares me to death as a pastor is how many people in our congregations, how many people across the United States did something when they were 6, 10, 15 years old. Now they're 45, 50, 60 years old with zero evidence of any sort of transformation in their life. And they think, I'm good. I checked that box off years ago. It scares me to death when I ask somebody for their testimony, and their testimony is nothing more than telling me something that they did when they were a child, and they don't really care at all what goes on today. Our works don't save us, but the New Testament is clear. These are some of the evidences that have to take place in our lives to indicate it. The human side we see here, leading, listening, changing what are some of the things that we would look at in our lives second peter verses or chapter 1 verses 5 through 11 says this just listen to this peter writes this for this very reason make every effort to supplement your faith 
with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, your knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. Let's eight things there. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Confirm your calling and election. Look at your lives. Are these things in your life? One of the responsibilities for us is to constantly examine our spiritual walk. My prayer is that you do that regularly. But now we have the divine side, the sovereignty of God side that we see in this passage. There's two things that we'll look at in this. The first is calling that Jesus calls. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. The command, follow me. As I studied this passage of scripture, there was an interesting quote that I saw in several different uh, commentaries by a guy by the name of Gerald Borcher. I think that's how you say his name. Sounds French, sounds good in this section of John. He wrote this. It is intriguing to ask a very simple question concerning these stories in this section of John. Who really finds whom? Christians have frequently been known to say that they found Christ or found faith, as Andrew and Philip reported. But maybe Jesus' perspective in these stories could profitably alter such a self-centered view of salvation. It was not Jesus who was lost. They found Christ, but he wasn't lost. As we read through the New Testament, it is clear that we can't come to Christ in our own power. John chapter 6, verse 44, which we'll look at when we get there, says, No one comes to me unless the Father first draws him. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, We are dead in our sins and trespasses. What does a dead person do? I mean, if you're, you got life support, one little beep on the heart thing, you could maybe come back. But when you're dead, you're dead. We see here Jesus as he calls them. We see Jesus as he works in their lives. There is a supernatural act of the divine going on. And how does he call us? How does he do this? Well, he does this by the, the second point, the last point that we'll look at in this. He does this by revealing things to us. There's two things that he reveals to do two different people. The first is Peter. Andrew brings Peter, Simon, says, we found the Messiah. So he brings it to it. And Jesus looks at him in verse 42, says, you're Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Of all of the things that John could have recorded about the interaction with Simon, Peter, and Jesus this first time, the only thing he records for us is Jesus changes his name to Rock. We say Peter, but they would have heard the word Rock, like Rocky. You know, yo, Adrian, Rocky. When we think of Rocky, you know, you think of that nickname, it would still kind of have the same connotation to us today. You know, it's solid, a foundation. Jesus kind of told a little bit more about the meaning of this, this name. And in, in, when we see it more in Matthew chapter 16, when he starts talking about he's the Messiah and he's going to build his church. And he says, Peter, you're the rock. You're going to be the guy after I ascend into heaven. He doesn't say it all this way. But when I ascend into heaven, you're kind of the human guy that's going to be the foundation for the greatest movement in the history of the world, the church. And he does this the very first time he meets him. He reveals this truth to him. 
Nathaniel, we already looked at him. He hears his buddy Philip say, hey, we found the one that's written about in the Old Testament. He doesn't really think it's, you know, he's from Nazareth, really? But he does go. And Jesus, we've already looked at, said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. That he's not somebody that's just clinging to his heritage. That's somebody who's not deceived. And then he says this little thing. Before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree. Now, yes, there's a prediction there. Or there's something Jesus sees. that. But being under the fig tree, that was kind of a, a place sitting under a shade tree. Sitting somewhere and studying the scriptures. That Nathaniel was somebody that was looking into the word of God. And Jesus is revealing something to him. He even says later, he says, I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. You believe you're going to see greater things than these, Nathaniel. Buckle your seatbelt. The next three years, the next bit of your life until, as all of these guys do, they die pretty rough deaths. Your life is going to be different. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of the spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That when we come, there is a divine work of the Holy Spirit that pierces into us, pierces into our heart, pierces into our soul, and reveals things about us that we didn't know. Peter had no idea, as he's sitting there fishing, doing whatever he is, and he goes with his brother Andrew, that he's going to get a new name and become one of the most significant human beings to ever walk the face of the earth. What's interesting is Jesus doesn't tell him everything right up front, does he? That probably would have been a bit much. Hi, I'm Simon. You're going to be the most, one of the most important people to ever walk the face of the earth. Like going back to fishing. He just gives him a bit. You're the rock. You'll find out more later. One of the things about Christ and the divine work of Christ is he doesn't always reveal all of his plans to us. Up front, does he? I remember when I first was going to be a pastor, which requires you. It's one of the job parts. You have to get up in front of large groups of people and talk. And I, by nature, am a guy who doesn't like to talk. My wife will tell you that. In fact, the idea when I first started this of standing up in front of hundreds of people for 30-plus minutes, trying to make sure that not too many fell asleep, just that was... And if God had told me that when I was a kid, I probably would have run away. But bit by bit, he reveals things to us. He challenges us and changes us. And you, I don't know where you are in your life, and sometimes you question and you challenge, but you may be somewhere with, with Peter. You know, Peter, I always feel for Peter. When Jesus calls him Simon, it's always when he's in trouble. You know, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, and when he's on the beach and he says, Simon, do you love me? Three times. It's Simon. It's always when he's in trouble. It's like when you're a kid and your parents use your first and your middle name. That was never a good sign. You know, Jason Eric. And they would shorten my first name sometimes. So it would just be J. Eric. And if you say that really fast, it's just jerk. And I was like, I'm in trouble now. They busted out the jerk one. But he has this up and down relationship with Jesus throughout the New Testament. As Jesus fashions him into who he's going to be. And then there's also the last verse of this, the last thing we'll look at. 
After Jesus talks to Nathaniel, says, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you'll see greater things than these? He then tells him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In the Old Testament, there's an account of Jacob, who was the father of the 12. He had 12 sons who they become the 12 tribes. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and there's connotations to that, and when Nathaniel's called an Israelite, and so on and so forth. But Jacob leaves his home, and on his way, as he's traveling out by himself, he gets a rock for a pillow, and he goes to sleep one night, and he has a dream. And there's a ladder from heaven to earth, and angels going up and down, and which everyone believes this is a reference to that. And as Jesus talks about this, he says, the angels of God ascended to send. It's not on the less the son of man. Jesus is talking about himself. And he says, listen, you will learn, you will understand that I, Jesus Christ, am the connection between earth and heaven. There is no other. And Jesus reveals this. When Peter made his confession that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus said, blessed are you. It's not flesh and blood. It's not because you're more moral than anybody else. You're smarter than anyone else or anything like that, Peter. You recognize this because God revealed it to you. So you put all of this together, the human side, leading, listening, changing, the divine side, calling and revealing. What you see is, is in looking at all of this, how God works, how we work, we see this. If you fall too far in just the, the human side... You just look at that area, and there are churches that just fall too far into that category. We become nothing more than gimmicks. We become nothing more than people that are trying anything and everything to entertain people. we got to do bigger and better events and more exciting things to keep them entertained because God's not doing his. We have to do it all. We have to lead them. We have to open up their ears to listen to whatever message we can give them. They change in whatever superficial way that we can convince them to change, maybe modify their behavior a little bit or whatever, and pat ourselves on the back and say, we've done a good job. And if we fall too far on the other side, where it's just the divine side, we become fatalistic. We just live our lives and say, you know what? It doesn't really matter what I do. God's going to take care of whatever he's going to take care of. Whether I do what I'm supposed to do or not, it's totally irrelevant. And churches become dead groups of people that just huddle around and talk about whatever it is they want to talk about. But instead, we're like the, we should be like the disciples who understood that they were to lead people. They were to look for people that were listening. They were to look for genuine change, trusting the entire time that God was doing the work that he does, that he was calling people. His Holy Spirit was convicting people, was piercing their hearts, was revealing to them who they were, who he is. And so when I leave here and I go out and I meet people, or I talk to people, I pray for my relatives, I do the things that I do as a follower of Christ, as I lead my children, as I lead my family. I do what God has called me to do, trusting, saying, God, I know you're doing what you've said you would do. And so we get up just like the disciples, Peter and Andrew and Nathaniel and Philip, and we buckle up. I don't know where he's leading me all the time. I don't know where I'll end up someday, but I trust him, and I try to obey him. And that's what he's called each and every one of us in this room to do. To examine their lives, to make sure that they have repented of their sins and turned to him and they're changed. And to go out and do what God has called them to do. 